We lost Casey during the introduction, everybody. But he's gonna come back. There we go. We have him back. No worries. There you are, Casey. Right in the middle of the first live intro ever on video. You go in and back out. Sorry, that's what I get for trying to use a really old MacBook. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Hello, everybody. This is a different format. We are all live. You see all of our faces. Welcome to the Canna Book Club. Welcome to 2022. That's right. Our first episode rocking on through. I'm excited to have everybody here. So without further ado, Casey Alberon, it is you, my friend. Let's go. Let everybody know hey. what we're studying this week and let's get rocking and rolling as usual. Oh my gosh. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is the Canna Book Club where every week we get together and pick a new uh, cannabis research article and bring it to you live, kind of. Um, this week we're kind of trying something new. Um, we are here on video and let's see how it goes. Uh, um, usually we kind of stream live and get the input from an audience, but you're going to get us today. And you know, if you're kind of uh, interested in research or cannabis research, you should definitely hit us up and join us sometime. So my co-hosts and I, we get together and we each take a section of the paper and break it down um, so that we can relay this information to be way more understandable. Uh, my name is KCA and I'll be kind of doing the ice breaking of the paper and giving you the abstract and eventually the results. Molly is gonna do the introduction. My guy, Corey, will graciously handle the method section and our PhD in the house, Dr. Anna Schwabe, will get us going on a, the discussion section. And we'll all get back together again at the end to talk about the paper overall. Um, so I'm just gonna kind of go into it and introduce the paper. Um, of course, I'm having some technical difficulties with my paper. Paper is out of the uh, Journal of Natural Products, Chemistry and Research. Uh, the, uh, the authors are um, Elzinga, Podkolinski and Raber um, out of the workshop in Pasadena, California, which is actually nearby where I grew up in San Gabriel Valley. Um, some interesting news on Raber we discovered this morning. Um, you should definitely look up the workshop. Uh, and then we all we also have Fishstick out of Excelsior Analytical Lab in Union City. So this uh, the paper is from 2015, and it's titled "Cannabinoids and Terpenes as Chemotaxonomic Markers in Cannabis." Uh, here's the abstract. In this paper, we present principal component analysis, or PCA, results from a data set containing 494 cannabis flower samples and 170 concentrate samples analyzed for 31 compounds. A continuum of chemical composition amongst cannabis strains was found instead of distinct chemotypes. Our data shows that some strains are much more reproducible in chemical composition than others. Strains labeled as indica were compared with those labeled as sativa and no evidence was found that these two cultivars are distinctly different chemotypes. Principal component analysis of OG and Kush type strains found that OG strains have relatively higher levels of alpha terpenol, phenyl, limonene, campine, terpenoline, and linalool where Kush samples were characterized mainly by the compounds transosamine, guile, beta-eudismal, myrcene, and alpha-pinene. Uh, the, the composition of concentrates and flowers were compared as well. Although the absolute concentration of compounds in concentrates is much higher, the relative composition of compounds between flowers and concentrates are similar. So that's the, the abstract. Molly, go ahead and take it away with the introduction. 
Thank you, Casey. Uh, yeah, so this is actually a pretty interesting paper. I think this is a topic that many people would find to be very interesting. Um, we all know that cannabis has been used for medicinal and recreation purposes for a very long time. And this whole time, we've been differentiating them by three types, which is uh, cannabis sativa is our hemp type, cannabis indica drug type, and we have cannabis ruderalis, which is the wild type. And that distinction is more important in terms of the legal um, uh, I guess, uh, verbiage. And uh, commonly, uh, it is accepted that the distinction between sativa and indica strains uh, exists, and that indica plants are our short ones, bushy ones, they flower uh, for shorter periods of time, they have um, smaller uh, space between the nodes, our sativa plants are taller, their branches are, you know, very stretchy, they have narrow leaves, uh, it's they also claim that these two have differentiation in, in terms of their effects, which is sativa, our energizing ones, and indica, the sleepy ones. Um, but this study showed that cannabis is uniformly effective in relieving symptoms across a wide range of uh, different diagnostic categories. And uh, indica strains actually appear to be superior to sativa strains in terms of improving energy and appetite, which I think um, is very interesting because it is sort of uh, contradicting a lot of... Um, what we believe in right now um, in the community. Uh, there's no statistical difference between sativa and indica that was found for a lot of the different symptoms such as pain, mood, nausea, muscle spasms, seizures, um, and other ailments. Um, the strains were assigned based upon morphology. Uh, in this study, uh, it was not blind uh, study, but it was observed that differences could be a result of uh, expectations by the patient, which is a placebo effect. Um, and uh, if sativa and indica truly did have different uh, physiological effects upon consumption, maybe uh, there would be some compounds uh, or interaction of compounds that would be responsible for that effect. Uh, it has been shown that CBD can influence the psychoactive uh, effects of THC. Um, and it's been uh, postulated that combination of phytocannabinoids and terpenes could result in a complementary or synergetic results. That's what they usually refer to as entourage effect. Um, in this paper, they used PCA to investigate uh, the results for cannabinoids and terpenes in 494 cannabis flower samples, and they also had 170 cannabis concentrate samples. Um, in this analysis, they tried to attempt to investigate the potential existence of distinct cannabis chemotypes that could explain those differences um, that you know people are having um, with the strains. Uh, cannabinoids and terpenes were chosen as chemotype markers as they're considered to be the main physiologically active uh, components in cannabis. Um, and they also were looking at cannabis from a chemotaxonomic perspective here. Uh, Small and Beckstead, they split um, cannabis sativa into three chemotypes based on the CBD to THC ratio. I think this one is a lot of people are very uh, familiar with. We have type one um, where uh, CBD to THC ratio is less than 0.5. Type two has intermediate uh, ratios and type three has uh, a ratio of higher than um, 3%. Then we had... Um, Sorry, one second. Oh, my God. Uh, the other study that we had was performed by El Soli, who analyzed 157 samples from six geographical regions and classified them using statistical analysis of the peaks. Um, and although they managed to differentiate samples from different countries, the success of the approach was limited uh, because only, you know, geographical location was used, but many other cultivational um, variables that could be influenced in the chemical composition uh, that could be at play here. Uh, much of the cannabis that's being grown in the Western world is grown indoors, and that means that they're grown in the controlled environment. So, of course, uh, those strict variables uh, would be uh, having a, an effect. So the use of controlled uh, you know, lighting, um, soil, your nutrient system, your IPM, um, that all would be you know, very important. And so it would be really difficult to replicate that with geographical assigning, if not impossible. Um, then we have uh, Fishstick, who analyzed 11 cultivars of cannabis for 36 compounds. And he also managed to discriminate the various cultivars with PCA. So higher levels of cannabinoids correlated positively to higher level of terpenoids, 
And the authors of this paper showed that it's possible to grow can cannabis with uh, reproducible terpene and cannabinoid levels over different batches, as long as your environmental conditions and genetics are standardized. Um, alterations in growth cycle, time plans, uh, stress, and also different genotypes can cause um, very considerable differences in chemical profile. Uh, and they're also mentioning another study by Cassano, who investigated the variability of terpene profiles in 16 plants from different strains of cannabis sativa. They separated the samples into mostly indica, mostly sativa, and they did that based on their morphological appearance um, that was declared by the cultivators of that strain. Um, and that study showed that large variation of relative content of terpenes um, between strains uh, can suggest that terpene variation can be used as a tool for characterization of cannabis biotypes. Um, in this study, mostly indica strains were characterized by dominancy of betamercine with limonene or alpha-pinene as the second most abundant terpene. And the mostly sativa strains were characterized by more complex terpene profiles with some strains having alpha-terpenaline or alpha-pinene as a dominant and some strains having betamercine as dominant with um, alpha-terpenaline or trans-beta-osamine as second most abundant. So to our knowledge, this is the first paper that's reporting the chemotypical differences using samples that are available to patients um, in the medical cannabis dispensaries. Most of the previous papers used samples that were collected worldwide, and they were based upon their reported cannabinoid levels, and they were not representative of the cannabis that's currently available for us in the United States or America, uh, I mean, or Canada, this sounds really funny, uh, to patients and recreational users. It's important uh, to know that doctors often recommend indica or sativa strains to their patient, but right now scientific literature is actually lacking evidence to support those recommendations. Um, and in this paper, they take a um, PCA approach to investigate the variation between strains in California medicinal marijuana market. Um, and also specifically, they wanted to look at the differences in the compositions uh, between indica and sativa strains. And I'm complete. Awesome, Molly. Thank you. All right. Corey, ready for the methods? I don't know if I'm ready for the methods. I think that's a question is, is everybody else ready for such a short section from me this week? This, this has to be the shortest, you know, Dr. Anna, I know, you know, we might have some new listeners this week, but you know, a lot of folks have heard you say that this part is the most boring part. I think this is the best part because it's the shortest one for me. I had to prepare probably, no. I had to probably prepare most because I had to read the entire rest of the paper and really make sure that I give something in the other sections here, to be honest with you. So for this one here, uh, when everyone kind of takes a look, they're really, again, this is like chemical analysis. So there isn't a lot of fun things as far as horticulture is concerned um, or growing plants, uh, which I know a lot of people can hear the excitement uh, when I go through that. So for here, I really encourage again to everybody go through if you want to understand what PCA is, if you want to understand these analytical measurements that they're doing, go through it. The one thing that I know again that that really jumps out for me is that, you know, this is another paper that is really using the Leafly database. And so that's something that again is a little bit, you know, again, I'm Canada, so I'm kind of foreign to the American stuff. But again, that's not a foreign thing for us up here in Canada. Leafly has, you know, kind of gone through a, a learning curve. And so a lot of folks um, up here in Canada didn't really think that it was a very um, reliable database. And so I know every time I show these papers to cultivators up here, that's kind of the one thing that they notice is, like, oh, there's that Leafly site again. Uh, so that's one thing that I want to point out. The the timing, I think, is important for the database, for this data, right? So sometimes people, you know, hear that we talk about these papers and they kind of pull different conclusions. It's important to note that the Leafly data that they're using from here is back from 2015 as well. So if there's any sort of, you know, maybe confusions or maybe you've, you know, heard a point that might be a little bit different, maybe, you know, just kind of a heads up. Some of that database information is a little bit, you know, dated. And so I do uh, just kind of throw that in there. Um, I don't know if that does have, you know, a, a severe impact on, on the study that we're looking at. But I think that's important to notice because of just the conversation about cannabinoids and terpenes and how it really has advanced uh, since then. So I just kind of wanted to point that out where that's coming from. But other than that, I don't really think that I can push 
too much else about the materials and methods because I am not uh, into analytical measurements. That's just not my my dance partner. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that a little bit, but at the same time, you know, encourage everybody just to kind of understand that context for where the data is coming from and who uh, it's coming from for that study. So if I can if I can add anything else to that, I would. Bless you, Molly. Uh, Dr. Anibis, is there anything else that I can add into that materials and methods at all? Or is there anything else that you might have noticed that we can kind of, you know, maybe add value to that section? Because it's a, it's a dry one and a rather short one. It's very short. And I mean, the only thing, I mean, the, the, the analytical, you know, they extracted some stuff. They measured the CBD and the THC and some other stuff. And then they did the, the terpenes, right? So that's pretty straightforward. And honestly, their statistical methods are pretty straightforward. It's like Excel stuff, right? Um, I would say that the only thing that maybe we could explain a PCA is a principal components analysis. And so basically, I've, I've talked about this before. It's a cloud of data. And the cloud, so the data points are in 3D space. But on a flat piece of paper, you can only show 2D. So what the PC1 and PC2, PC1 is the axis that shows the most variation in the data cloud. Uh, so you can think about rotating that cloud and where all of the data points separate out the most, that's going to be your principal components number one. And they put that on the x-axis. And then the second axis is going to be, usually it's a, a PC2, is going to be your second axis, which shows the next level of the most variation in the data. They do further on in, in the results when Casey gets to it, they do some comparisons with principal component one and then three or four, because it as cool. you rotate that cloud, you can see some of the clustering that you wouldn't see if you were looking at axis one and two because they're hidden behind some of the data. So it, it's really hard to visualize if you haven't seen it, but um, I think I've mentioned before, the Phylos Galaxy is a really good way to look at a PC, how a PCA would work in that cloud of data, and you can rotate it, and you can see, you know, where perhaps these axes would fall. So that's the only thing I would add. Solid. I appreciate that. Yeah, that Phylos Galaxy, you know, I know there's a whole bunch of controversy surrounding that whole thing, but that Galaxy concept and the way to do that and view those connections is by far one of the coolest things i've ever seen in the industry i remember going into lyft uh, in toronto right before legalization and seeing that and speaking with them there and uh yeah i was just absolutely blown away so yeah really cool thing if anyone hasn't checked out the phylos galaxy please check that out that's a really good uh point that's you know something that people can take a look at and understand you know how we're looking at it and how that data is right away so really appreciate that dr anibus casey it's back to you brother thanks corey uh, yeah, so we've got our results section, um, a lot of tables, really valuable information and graphs that show some cool correlations that and the PCA stuff that Anna was talking about. Uh, funnily enough, I um, I wish this first section was in the methods, so the methods was a little more fluffy. Um, the description of the flower data set, because uh, that kind of usually goes in like materials and methods. So. They used 494 samples, eight samples for each um, had a uniquely identifiable strain <clears throat> and 35 strains are present <clears throat> in the data set. Um, so they're analyzing THC and CBD concentrations. Um, we have 28 terpenes that were analyzed uh, and 11 strains were assigned to the OG group, five strains as Kush. So I'm going to start with table two. Table one is basically just the list of um, terpenes. Table two is really nice. Um, and I mean, it's basically kind of just throwing everything, how it was categorized in Leafly and matching it up with the, the THC levels. So some notable findings from, uh, ta uh, from table two, they mentioned that THC concentration can vary widely, even within one strain. Uh, 14 out of 35 differed more than a factor of two. Uh, so basically they're saying it'd be pretty silly to try to predict potency of a flower product based just on the strain name. Uh, everything was assigned as indica, sativa, or hybrid, or unknown uh, with the leafly.com data. Um, Figure one, uh, this is the distribution of THC max percentage. Uh, the average THC 
percentage was 16.8%. Uh, information regarding the cultivation conditions were not available, but it's speculated that those two peaks uh, in the graph might be um, indoor versus outdoor production. Um, figure two, that's the CBD. Uh, the average CBD was 0.6%, uh, and all but 16 samples had less than 1.49% CBD. So basically, the, the medical cannabis market in California, especially probably in 2015, was dominated by high THC strains. And it, it pretty much still is, but you kind of have a little more options if you're looking for maybe like a high CBD or some other um, kind of more breakout cannabinoids like CBG and THCV, stuff like that. <clears throat> uh, so they're mentioning uh, there's a lot of uh, supplemental graphs and information. <clears throat> so like Corey said, definitely check this paper out if you're more interested in a deep dive. Um, they got, they go a little further into the cannabinoid and terpene ratio data, um, but I'm just going to move on from that. The principal component analysis of complete flower data set. Uh, so a lot of these figures show data that's been scored and loaded, so they say, and uh, scoring helps to better organize that crazy web <clears throat> to find uh, more common groupings. Uh, loading shows how strongly each characteristic influences a principal component. So in figure three, um, you can see the there's that grouping of Harlequin um, outside of the main cluster. So they basically that's um, probably the only few samples that I mentioned that had that high CBD content. Um, and it also included a little a little triangle there. That purple one is um, OG Kush, um, which isn't necessarily similar to the other OG Kush. So that's kind of a weird outlier, but I don't know. Who knows? OG Kush could be anything these days. <laughs> um, then I wanted to point that out real quick too. If people do take a look at that chart, the THC difference on OG Kush is one of the largest. I think the lowest was three or 4% and the highest yeah. was 18 or 19. So yeah. huge swing on the OG Kush cultivar for sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, so then they start to kind of cross the data and look at the other like sections of the PC1, PC2. They're crossing it um, like Dr. Anna mentioned. Um, so then they started to see that Trainwreck and Jack Carrere kind of made their own little group. And this is likely due to the quantities of terpenoline, alpha-terpenine, and alpha-philandrine. Uh, in figure nine, they got a grouping of green crack, likely due to amounts of CBG, cis-osamine, and trans-osamine. Um, and... I mean, yeah, basically, if, if you're into this, check out these figures. It's really cool to see some of the groupings that they find. I don't want to go too deep into all of them, but I just want to highlight a few of the cool kind of uh, concentrations of groupings. Um, I'm going to move on to the comparison of Indica versus Sativa. Uh, there was definitely a solid mix of um, Indica and Sativa. Uh, didn't I forgot what what figure this is. Um, it's a little further, Corey. Uh, but yeah, sorry, I got really excited about seeing. I just wanted to kind of. I was gonna sneak yeah. in there before, but this this paper is really good for actually using contrasting colors. Remember some of these other graphs that we've had to use where three colors all look the same. This one yeah. is really, you can actually see the differences in here, and I just I really appreciate about that these figures for sure. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, so um, you can see, wait, wait, go back, go back. That was the figure 11 is what I'm looking at right now. Yeah, so you can see there's like, on that left side, there's a nice like solid blend of the Indica and Sativa, but on that, in that blue square, um, there's a good chunk of Indica samples that were separated. <clears throat> so um, some of the dominant strains from the Indica group included first-generation Diablo, Black Mamba, and True OG. 
These were high in limonene, fenchel, alpha terpenol, alpha terpenol, camphene, linalool, THC, camphor, geraniol, beta thionine, and beta caryophyllene. Um, that's kind of the main thing you could get from that. Uh, with the next section, OG versus Kush. Interesting uh, dilemma here. Um, so there's a nice mix in the center of that graph, but the OGs kind of made their own nice little side cluster. Um, the dominant OGs included SFV OG, True OG, and Tahoe OG. Um, and these all had a high level of alpha terpenol, fenchel, limonene, camphene, terpenoline, and linalool. Uh, the dominant Kush varieties included Velvet Kush, Blackberry Kush, and Purple Kush, all high in transosamine, glial, beta udesimal, myrcene, and alpha thionine. And then they looked at concentrates. Um, they broke it down kind of more by like the THC to CBD ratios, like, um, and they presume in figure five that, you know, it might even show some of the production processing um, with those peaks, with some of the peaks uh, showing like keef, hash, and CO2 extracts, because you're kind of getting different concentrations of THC there. Um, and actually, I'm actually going to end here because they didn't really find much valuable information from the concentrates, um, which is probably just because, you know, you're removing a lot of the plant material and just like super concentrating the THC. HC and CBD and terpenes, so maybe that just kind of doesn't give you much information to to graph. Um, so that is the result, y'all. Anna, would you like to take it away with the discussion section? I would love to. So basically, um, you know, they had a lot to say about this. So I'm just going to run through it super quickly. So the first thing that they state, and this is funny because as I'm reading this, like I, I did reference this paper a lot during my dissertation work, but they like, they like the same things that I say all the time are literally in this paper. One thing is that THC is highly variable within a strain. So if you purchase Blue Dream at one dispensary and Blue Dream at another dispensary, you know, it could, it, the, the THC is not going to be the same between them. Um, and strain names don't indicate potency. So you can't say that Blue Dream is 22% THC because it all is very variable. Um, and likely all this variation in um, cannabinoids and terpenes are probably due to environmental conditions. Um, because if you start out with the same genetic material, it has the potential to uh, become you know, an identical phenotype or a very close phenotype, but when we're growing in different conditions and people have different watering regimes and different nutrient um, applications and, you know, different growth media, all that stuff is going to feed into the chemotype, um, the potency, and also time of uh, harvest. So how mature is the flower when you harvest it? Did you pick it early? Did you pick it late? Then the curing process is also going to be different from dispensary to dispensary, and the time to sale is also going to in um, going to introduce some level of variation as well. So this is this is showing pretty well that the strain names don't tell you anything about the chemical composition because of all that variation um, among growing conditions, and this shows the importance of describing a chemical composition in the flower um, to give the customer or the consumer more information about a what they've purchased but what is in that flower that they're going to consume what is the thc potency does it have cbd in it what are the dominant terpenes um and that's you know we want we want to know uh or a patient may want to know the, the chemical composition so that they can get repeatable uh physiological outcomes when they're treating some sort of condition um, so there isn't really any chemotype clustering, and we saw that in the PCAs, that it was just kind of a smattering, a, a uh, what do I want to call it, like a gradient of um, chemotypes. So we couldn't really pinpoint where 
specific strains fell on that um, on that you know gradation. Um, except there were a couple, so they they were able to tease out. Harlequin came out nicely. Green Crack, Trainwreck, Jacquerere, and Blue Dream all made little clusters, so that was kind of cool. Um, and of course, they say that there's more research that's needed on specific chemotypes for specific effects. So especially when we're talking about medicine, what is the chemotype that could be used or could be um, described to treat specific conditions? And we're totally not really there yet, uh, although it has been a, a, a level of discussion among, among the community and among scientists for a while now that we need to figure out chemical compositions and how they relate to the physiological effects in, in the body. Um, sativa is not really different from indica, so we remember the blue and red um, cloud of data, but then indica does, some of the indicas do separate from that sort of blended indica sativa cloud. Um, and these authors say that we need a new classification system. So right now, in a lot of dispensaries, um, strains are described as either having indica effects or sativa effects or a hybrid effect. And these authors are saying that's not terribly efficient um, or or accurate, which is true. But it's also we also have to remember that um, the chemotypes are going to differ based on environmental effects. So describing something based on the chemotype is not really effective either because we have this whole level of variation and there's a whole gradient. So like where do you fall on that gradient? And what are those things in it? That's not really an effective method either. So they, although they do say we need a new method, they don't really offer any um, propositions on how we can solve that issue. And remember that there are hundreds of compounds in the cannabis plant. And really, although they did look at a lot, this is still only a handful of, of chemicals, of phytochemicals that they're looking at. And as I always say, abundance doesn't equal potency. So there could be something in here that they didn't look at it's in a very tiny quantities that is giving uh, a lot of impact to how that plant is, uh, creates physiological effects. Um, the OG Kush or the, the Kushes and the OGs separate out nicely. And that was kind of interesting to me. It seems like there is a, a like a, a terpene profile associated with those, those different types. Um, I just found that very interesting. And then um, the final thing that they say is that Concentrates in flour have similar compositions, um, but flour is less concentrated, obviously, because concentrates are concentrated. Um, uh, so, so you can potentially still use concentrates the same way you use flour and just dose it um, differently because concentrates are concentrated. So you can kind of dial it back instead of, you know, uh, taking, you know, six hits as you would do with flour, you only take one and you kind of get the same dose. Um, and that was totally off the top of my head and not accurate, don't do that. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, th that's pretty much what the summation of this paper, which it was, um, I don't know, I, I like this paper a lot. It's, it's well done, I think. Um, and they didn't really mention any limitations, um, which is fine. They had a really good sample size. They did pretty straightforward statistics and analyses so yeah yeah i thought i think this this information is really valuable are you gonna say something molly yeah i was just gonna say that um you know people frequently ask me like what's your favorite like indica or sativa and this paper basically sort of like sums up all of the like you know millions of thoughts a second that i have when people ask me that question because I want to be honest when I answer it, but I also want to explain to people that it might not necessarily be the most accurate question that they could ask. Um, and there's also like another, you know, bit to it that we are all so individual when it comes to how cannabis affects us, how our endocannabinoid system is to begin with. Then we have all the possible conditions that you have. Then, for example, you could be a neurodivergent person like me. And there are some studies that show that, you know, we can have a cannabinoid deficiency. So supplementation of cannabinoids actually can help us to have like a normal, I guess, quality of life where, you know, you're uh, getting rid of certain symptoms. And so even when people say, OK, well, you know, if you can say indica or sativa, but for me, it's mostly the indica cold strains. 
Um, then people ask, what strain is your favorite? And that's another point where I'm like, I can tell you what I like, but the problem is when you want to go and you want to try the same strain, there's a very high probability that, first of all, you won't be able to get your hands on the same product. And second of all, even if you do, let's say, um, find like a similar strain somewhere, there is no guarantee that it's going to give you a similar effect, not only because it can have a different um, a chemical profile, but also because your body can respond to it very differently. So that's why I think the whole classification for uh, treating symptoms and stuff is very complicated. And that's why when people ask me, oh, uh, you're a medical cannabis patient, you must be prescribed CBD. Um, and when I tell them that in Canada, there's actually like doctors have zero suggestions. You can book a consult where they can sort of discuss things with you, but it's a very like on the surface, not necessarily accurate of, and representative of the experience you're going to have. And um, that's why it's very hard for me to say, well, I'm a medical patient. And then they're like, well, how do they prescribe it to you? Well, they just say five grams a day and they don't like, you know, they don't dose me. They don't prescribe me a certain strain. They don't prescribe me a percentage of THC or CBD. They just sort of leave it in my own hands. Um, and from my conversations, even with the doctors, uh, sorry, one second, they, all they ask is you use cannabis. Yeah. Does it help you? Yeah. Awesome. They don't question how much you dose and they don't question what you consume. As long as you're feeling better for them right now, it seems to be enough. And I think it's very interesting because people's perception of medical cannabis and how it's supposed to be um, dis uh, not disposed, um, dispensed is very different from what it actually is because it's so hard for the doctor to say what will be good for you because it can be so different. I was um, thinking this whole time while you were talking, Molly, that it might be um, it might be effective for a different classification system um, if, like, specific growers or or cultivators were attached to or breeders were attached to the names. So, for example, you know, OG Kush, and then have you know, like as part of the strain name, who the cultivator was, because like everybody has like a favorite pizzeria. It's, it's pizza, right? It's, it's pizza. Pizza is pretty standard. It's got bread, sauce, cheese, whatever. But there are, are places that we prefer the pizza from more over others. And so if we had some sort of like cultivation information about who it was, then we might have a better idea of, of the quality of that product and how much we like it or not. Um, because a cultivator is going to have specific, you know, nutrients, water, um, time of harvest, uh, curing procedures, things like that. And so it would be interesting to see a study, um, comparing, you know, strains, but from diff like using the cultivation information, uh, to see if, you know, there, there's a cultivator that always comes out with a higher THC content or a certain, you know, complex of terpene profiles or something like that. It's just a thought that I had. So I would love that as a cultivator. I mean, uh, it, it holds accountability. I mean, that's the way that I purchased cannabis already in Canada. You know, I look at the name and, you know, chances are I probably know who's over there and yeah, then I kind of make that decision from there. So you're bang on the money with that. I think from, you know, my perspective as a grower uh, and the, the big frustration for me from just being in the cannabis side and what traditional horticulturalists, you know, for example, like tomato growers, you know, if you're in an area with a lot of, you know, greenhouses that are out there, you can usually find another greenhouse around the area that has that cultivar, that strain of tomato. So if you're seeing problems at your farm, you can go to another one. And you can interact with them, you can ask them questions, you can walk through, you can understand, you know, the challenges that, that you're seeing. And that absolutely does not exist, you know, in the cannabis industry at all. It's just tough enough just to get a tour with another grower at his facility because he thinks that he's got some sort of proprietary information that's just, you know, magic unicorns and fairy dust. It's, you know, it's really frustrating. So that's the part that I'm really, you know, looking forward to. And then I think it's also a twin fold because, you know, what we're just talking about here is there's a lot of manipulation of the genetics out here 
as far as, you know, throwing a name on things, but it's going to be the same thing. You know, there's certain companies that are contracted to grow for other companies and they can sell that same product, but they can't call it the same. So, you know, that OG Kush for somebody is going to be OG Kush for another company, but actually has a different name. And like, you're not allowed to give out that information based on the, you know, so that's also where it becomes a complete frustration for me is seeing that and knowing that happening is, you know, I've seen companies take cuts from other people and just give it another name. And then it's like, well, you know, how disingenuous is that? Um, and then, yeah, bookmark that for uh, sativa edibles. If I hear one more person come in and ask for a sativa edible, I'm just going to like, I don't know. I think that's, it's such a disservice to learning about the cannabis plant and understanding like what's going on. Right. Like, hello, 11 hydroxy. What are we doing here? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Frustrating for sure. So. Um, another, another sort of thought that I've had is in terms of like reducing this variation within strains is to have a set of standard growing conditions. Like you have to use this amount of nutrients in this blend with this water regime, with these lights, with this CO2. But then you can say if as a grower, you can adjust it. You just on the packaging say, these were, this is not grown under standard growing conditions. So the product may vary from your expectation grown under standard conditions, you know, so that if you want to produce something that everybody knows as a standard, um, like phenotype or chemotype, then you can grow under these conditions and it'll always turn out the same way. And then cultivators can also follow those SOPs and create, you know, the, the, the correct or the standard phenotype. Um, but it also would give cultivators who want to you know, put their own spin, their own magic fairy dust, their own proprietary blend of whatever or different lights. Then you, all you have to say is we, our, our, our process differs from the standard. And then that would give consumers and patients um, a different level of expectation of, of the product they're, they're going to get. And they can say, this is a better product for me, or, oh, I want to go back to knowing what I'm going to get every time. And that would be where you, your cultivator name or, or, or breeder would come into play. So this is the one thing that cookies brand does extremely well. And I know that they take a lot of heat for a lot of different things, but when, when you sign a contract with cookies, it comes with the cultivators from cookies. So then you know how you're troubleshooting that cultivar with them. And that's why they've been able to really have that standardization across all these different markets that they're launching in is because they have those, you know, subject matter experts for that cultivar strain, and they're able to push that uh, in the direction that they they do. And that's, yeah, that that's a super key thing. So I really do give them key, but that's again, you know that you're getting that consistent genetic like all across the board. So it's that it's that twofold thing again that I was talking about where you you know they've they've done both of those things. They I know the genetic stability of that to you know as much as we can right now, of course, right? Talking to the geneticist in the house, and then you know secondarily is they have that communication of that traditional horticulturalist background where you're able to have that dialogue and you know move forward with it. Like there's one cultivar that's pretty famous out here on the west coast and is now. Uh, getting out to the east coast is a pink kush and every single you know quote unquote true pink kush cultivar strain that we have out there is a very light feeding genetic it to honestly like when you're in propagation it almost seems like it doesn't want to take water and it's it's really really bizarre and you you cannot treat it the same as everything else at all you're not you know the plant size different is unbelievable if you know say you have a black cherry beside you or anything else, gorilla glue, like it's just going to do something completely different. So it's really important to understand that stuff to, you know, make sure that you have that consistent uh, bang. Cause that's the big problem. You know, some of these companies are putting out pink cushion. It's one of their best cultivars out there on the market. And then some of these other ones are giving up uh, for some of those reasons that I just uh, explained, but they just, they aren't, they aren't pivoting. Uh, and making sure that they go with that cultivar specific thing. So it's a it's a big challenge for us, it really is. But then you guys also mentioned like this comes from breeders first, right? And right now, because of the sort of the legal status all over the place, it's even hard for these like, you know, 
seed companies to get their product out and have those instructions and have that standardized process because all of the countries that grow their seeds might not necessarily have access to the same nutrients, same soil, because people reach out to me from other countries all the time. What do you guys use? Everything I tell them, for the most part, they can't find it. And so, for example, you know, like Russia, Ukraine, super legal to grow there. I talk to a bunch of people who are out there. They get access to most of the nutrients that are available out here, of course. Um, but then when it comes to soil, that's when it's a bit difficult for them. So they have to go to the gardener shops and get like a mix for roses and then add like extra stuff to it and just, you know, try to... Um, just sort of use whatever you have. But the interesting thing I found about, uh, you know, the seeds is that, you know, how they put the THC percentage. Majority of people who grow think that that THC percentage on the seed package is going to be 100% reflective of the product they're going to get, which is 100% not true because I've even reached out to a couple of these seed companies and I asked them, like, is this just a, you know, a vague number or average you guys give out? just to give an idea and that's pretty much what they said you know um and so there's just so much variability and i just can't see that um at least this is going to happen anytime soon unfortunately and then if you talk about licensed producers here in canada uh a lot of the times they switch their you know staff and growers uh especially in, in many big companies there's such a high turnaround that it can't really be attached to one person and they constantly switch their method because a lot of people are still trying to find that perfect uh, recipe for the success. Um, and very few are able to have that, you know, streamlined and consistent. And so this is where now we see people develop loyalty to different brands because they feel like the consistency is at least there. Yeah, you might not get the exact same thing every time but it's somewhat similar um it's not like you know one time you get awesome stuff next time you're like oh my god what is this rag um so there's a big part to that too it would be awesome though if more people were willing to grow um i think that would definitely uh just open up a whole different experience to people because after you try homegrown and then you look at the uh, legal products you can sort of tell how much, um, like how much the difference is simply like because like on a lot of the legal product when you smell it, you can't even smell those terpenes that they state on the pack because it stays in the warehouse for about six months usually. It's like an average time, and so it evaporates by the time it gets to you. So for a lot of consumers, it's even hard to sort of figure out uh, what they like and what suits them because what they get is not really representative of that testing uh, information on the label. And I think that's where a lot of the difficulties come through as well. And so I also understand people who say, I don't know, you say they're all different strains. Everything I've tried smells and looks exactly the same. And that's what I hear a lot of the time. So it's just, um, you know, not everybody takes it as a craft. And so I think that's why we have a lot of like super mediocre uh, stuff out there. And a lot of people just think that that's all it is to cannabis. Um, but almost in like, I would say 99% of the time when people try like craft products or homegrown stuff, their interest expands. And that's when they're like, oh my God, like it actually can smell like this. Like I'm going to have to look into this. Um, and so right now, like my best advice to people is like trying to figure out what you actually like and just, you know, like doing your own research on your body, essentially. And if you have access, you know, great idea to do that DNA testing. It is available now in Canada and in the U.S. Um, so at least like people can understand what their body is uh, tolerating well, because I think um, even, you know, playing around with edibles and the flower, a lot of the times people just can't figure out what works and so they give up halfway and for a lot of them it could be a really um, suitable treatment option but because there is no standardization they try something one time it doesn't work and you know they don't want to waste any more money and I you know sort of understand that um, so I really wish there was a bit more um, you know to kind of like uh, have that first experience at least a little bit better um, because it's so unpredictable for a lot of people. And uh, I just wish there was a, a more definite answer I could give to them when they come to me for an advice, you know?
Yeah, I think what's cool now is <clears throat> there's so much more information regarding like the medicinal qualities of even just the terpenes um, themselves because they come from other natural products, not just cannabis. Um, so, I mean, if you can do your own kind of research, you can see like, okay, this terpene is known to help with my problem. So maybe I need to start looking at these strains or these OGs or Kushes or Indicas or Sativas, maybe, um, that are known to be higher in those terpenes and cannabinoid levels. So we can all kind of start to be our own doctors. Um, with the terpene thing, um, I've been thinking about this for a while now. We do have a lot of information on terpenes um, just because they're so ubiquitous in the plant world and we do use them medicinally and we have been for centuries. However, we don't generally light them on fire and inhale them. So most of the information on terpenes is based on aromatherapy and eating it. So just keep that in mind that when you are smoking a flower, um, your medicinal qualities of the terpenes may not align with the research, with the with the data that's out there on what these terpenes can do. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I think that's huge. I think it's huge too to like be open. You know, Casey, you kind of corrected yourself a little bit, but I think you actually said the right thing, brother. Where you you know you kind of lumped in some indicas with some sativas, or you know that might not be your mix, like. Definitely just, you know, I think the big point of going over this paper today is really reinforcing the fact that stop thinking about indica and sativa, get that out of the brain, no matter what we can say that's wrong. We've gone through several different papers now on different levels where we can pretty much say, you know, again, I know in research is terrible to speak in absolutes, right, Dr. Anna, but there's a lot of evidence behind this where we, we need to come up with a new system. So you know, when you're going into that dispensary, rip off that indica sativa thing. Think about it differently, especially if that information is available to you in, in the terpenes. This is the first thing that I try and look for. And, you know, yes, that might not be exactly representative of the sample or the unit that I'm purchasing in that store, but at least it, it pushes me in a direction. You know, for example, sativas are terrible for me. They don't make me work well. However, I felt it was, you know, really discriminatory to just all of a sudden go in there and just knock off this list because it said sativa. And so my mission was really to try and, you know, love a quote unquote sativa strain. And I started focusing on those terpenes. And when I started focusing on those terpenes, I could come up that, you know, uh, bisabolo, uh, when that was prominent in a sativa based cultivar, I was able to smoke those type of things. And so, you know, and also like working in the dispensaries, you know, there's lots of folks that would come up to me, you know, hey, I smoke all day, all the time, but I can't smoke an indica in the morning because I have to go to work. And then, you know, the more times they would smoke a sativa cultivar, they'd keep getting anxious to the point of having panic attacks. And then they didn't want to smoke cannabis anymore. So I've literally had to take people by the hand and say, hey, please trust me. Like we can do this because I know exactly what you're going through let's go down the indica path and you know quote unquote and just try and you know navigate it because we didn't have any terpenes back in the good old days right so you know and, and it's happened i've seen people turn that other way so for those folks who are really having that you know terrible experience yes of course cannabis might not be for you but don't come to that conclusion because you are sitting in this box of indica and sativa and, and that's what's guided your experience because you know with all due respect, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I, I think with, with any journey, whether it's, you know, like I, I use, I use the alcohol reference just because everybody understands it. But like when you're in high school, what do you drink? You drink Boone's farm, you drink wine coolers, you drink Bud Light, like none wild of those are <laughs> for Canadians, wildcat, <laughs> white claw, like none of those are good. Then you, you know, you get older and you start making different decisions based on, you know, uh, you know, wines, let's say. So I, I enjoy white wine and I know that Napa Valley has, you know, some good wines. So then you start making different decisions. You start to learn more about what you're putting in your body, um, ingredients, different types of types of grapes or hops or whatever the case may be. Um, and then, you know, by the time you're old and you have money, um, you might 
have that money to spend on really high quality stuff that you can, you know, purchase and enjoy and savor, um, as opposed to what you did in high school, which is just, you know, I want to get drunk and I'm going to drink a bunch of Bud Lights. So, you know, there's this whole journey and people go through this with everything, whether it's clothing or furniture or, you know, alcohol or cannabis. You know, when you're, when you're, when you first move out of your parents' house, you buy your clothes from Walmart. They're not good clothes, but they're cheap, right? And they do the job. Uh, your furniture, you might get some stuff from the Salvation Army. Again, not great, but in, in, and used and stained potentially, but it does the job. So then, but then when you grow up, you, you know, you kind of, uh, you kind of get your own style. You get, you can pick out what is quality and you've got some more money to spend on these quality items. So I feel like it's kind of for a lot of people that works for cannabis as well. So, um, you, you need to start figuring out what you like, what you like and what you don't like. So if you have, uh, if there's a terpene out there that really you can figure out what, what is it that makes me anxious? What is it that makes me this or that? Like you'll figure it out eventually, but you have to kind of try these things for yourself and figure out what you like. Well, Dr. Anna. Okay. I have, cause we're getting onto an hour here, but I have kind of a funny question based on some of this data. So the OG Kush was, and unknown in Leafly. I'm wondering, is it an OG or is it a Kush? Or is it neither? Is OG even- I have, a, I have a question as well that sort of was with your question. What does OG stand for? Because I think that's what they mentioned in the paper too. Um, original gangster. Is it original or is it ocean grown? Because I've heard ocean grown many times. So what? this is where I was confused. Is it a kush that was grown near the ocean? Ocean grown. Ocean grown is the very original, original for that particular is supposed to be ocean grown. I know it's been lost in the world because everyone else uses OG for a different term. But back in what it was originally supposed to be was ocean grown originally. You're on mute, Dr. Anna. Oh, so it's still a Kush? Well, <laughs> you're the. I like how the geneticist is asking me that question. <laughs> or, wait, or are all the OGs, is that like a terror, terror? I can't say the word. You know what I mean? Like a, a regional like differentiation because all of that stuff is ocean grown because they're so all OGs. Like whole, I see, that's a whole other thing. I see. We're gonna have to. Thanks, we Casey. Have, we might have to do another episode on that part too, because there's this terroir thing that keeps coming up and coming up. So I keep doing a lot more, you know, reading on it, and I have a lot of things to say about it, you know. I and I, yeah, oh, so much, like to a point, but like terroir is often used in like wine, and like wine is over and over and over again. You don't just lop it off and take it out of there and completely disrupt what you i mean yeah there's a lot of different things that i i have on that one so yeah i mean great question thanks for setting the room on fire when we're supposed to wind down but <laughs> it's a really good one i think uh, you'll find totally different answers from everybody everybody especially people who live up there right like they're pretty proud about what's going on in there so i know there's some uh, strong opinions on the matter to say the least casey you know that you're from around that neck of the woods my friend <laughs> Not anymore. I'm in the Bay Area now. No more Humboldt. But oh, come on. You like can't, can't take the Humboldt out of the Humboldt there? Is that what you say? <laughs> like you know? But yeah, definitely that terroir thing is, is cool. And I think with legacy growings um, originating from like the Emerald Triangle, I think that'll be like, like really important. Plus just to kind of highlight like more regenerative farming over indoor growing not that there's anything wrong with indoor growing but i think there's a lot of importance regarding outdoor and specific environmental locations yeah totally right there's definitely some impact to it for sure um, mm -hmm. well i guess that's it for chemo taxonomy for the week um we'll be recording another episode very shortly 
and giving that content every week cannabis science with the cannabis club good job casey good job everybody i think you did a really 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 good job <laughs> for being live on video the first time and we all didn't say i'm in awe a lot i'm not gonna have to edit this one a lot so yeah <laughs> really good job everybody uh much love uh, this is honestly like one of the best things that i look forward to and thank you for rolling with this awkward schedule thanks to everybody who's going to watch this video on youtube uploaded next week day to be announced coming soon pay attention to all the channels if you have any questions for us about this episode contact us on instagram at team resonate and we'll get back to you and then maybe we can kind of develop like a mailbag portion of the show or something like that where we can go over the questions of the paper before this format's going to be a lot of fun <laughs> going to be a lot of fun anyways much love everybody thanks again for tuning in to the can of book club thank you so much for tuning in resonate radio we'll see you all later bye